please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tuckerman. You can't believe I'm 92, and, but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, so when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. Dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing. It's the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people. My father said you laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. I love you. Thank you. I'm doing double duty today. Amy Antonucci is our announcer, but she was not able to be here today. So I am going to be the announcer. And I would like to welcome you to Two Tales on Stage. And as I mentioned, my name is John Lovering. That was Miss Catherine Tucker Windham, and she was speaking at the 2010 Jonesboro, Tennessee Storytelling Festival. And she was 92 at the time, as she mentioned, and she shared with us her heartfelt belief that storytelling was a very valuable thing in our lives. And uh, now we are all storytellers. Everybody here is one, but some of us just don't know it yet. We all like to tell stories, generally, and we certainly, by the evidence of the fact that you're here, like to listen to them. So... I want to point out to you, True Tales is more than just a title. It means the kind of story you're going to hear. Every storyteller has to tell a story that they actually experienced or were there when it happened. They're not third person. This is first person storytelling. So you're not going to hear, hear myths or uh, lore, folklore, and that type of thing today. There'll be no dragons, no unicorns, no vampires. No mermaids, no wizards. In order to encourage the members of the community to get involved in this, we also wanted to remove all semblance of competition. So there's no ranking, there's no rating, judging, uh, nothing, no scoring, nothing at all. It's pure storytelling just for the sake of telling, sharing a part of their lives with a group of people that are interested in hearing it and probably would like to share a part of their life as well by telling a story. But that's the whole point, bringing us together. Uh, one of the other things we try to do is to have a theme. And today's theme is changing expectations and beliefs. And our storytellers include Glenn Bergeron, Mark Michael Adams, David Frina, Elizabeth Wolfe, Pat Spaulding, and Sharon Jones. Now, doubling up today is Pat Spaulding, because Pat is our MC for True Tales, 
And it's my distinct pleasure to uh, introduce this very talented and respected storyteller and my friend, Pat Spaulding. Pat? Thank you, John. John isn't aware, but I am a mermaid. <laughs> so, not entirely first-person person experience. I am uh, happy to introduce the first set, which is going to explore the influence of family on changing expectations and beliefs. And first up, we have Glenn Ber Bergeron. He lives with his wife, Trudy, in Greenland, New Hampshire. He retired from the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, where he worked for 45 years as a tool and die maker. Alongside that, Glenn had a very interesting second career. He was raised in Newmarket, New Hampshire, where for 37 years, his parents owned and operated the Rockingham Ballroom. How many of you have been to the Rockingham to dance? I, I did, dance with my dad there. Glenn worked there for 26 of those years, managing it with his mother for the final six after his father's death. He has the good fortune of having met most of the great band leaders of the big band era, except for Lawrence Welk. No bubble machine came to the Rockingham. Glenn remembers many experiences from those ballroom days. But tonight's story is an unwanted memory. Come on up, Glenn. Good afternoon. Owning a ballroom really, um, really is a very interesting thing. Uh, you, you have a chance to meet a lot of wonderful people, and you have a chance to hear some very interesting stories. There was one customer that uh, talked to me one time, and he was telling me about the Wonderland Ballroom in Revere, Massachusetts. And what, st and what stood out about that particular ballroom is that it had two dance floors, a huge dance floor on the ground level, and it had another smaller dance floor on the upper level. And the deal was that you came in and you paid one admission, you could dance and listen to the big band music on the uh, ground floor, and if that tired you, you could go upstairs and listen to country and western, and move up and down whatever you wanted to do during the evening. So I thought of that, and I said, wow, you know, a lot of these ballrooms are being closed down now, and that ballroom is really interesting to me. I think I better see that before they start closing it. Well, a few weeks after that, I went out and I uh, took a, uh, a rare Saturday night off. Went out and bought new clothes, a pair of gray slacks, nice white sweater, shirt and tie. Called up a date, and uh, we drove down to the Wonderland Ballroom in Revere. Upon arriving and entering the hall, I noticed that it was laid out similar to the Rockingham Ballroom. A large dance floor to the left, in the back a full-service bar to the right. Flanking around the uh, dance floor on all three sides was tables, chairs, and a white tablecloth. Cabaret style, classic, just like the Rockingham. So in conversation with the hostess, in the brief conversation, uh, it came out that my father and mother owned the Rockingham Ballroom. Oh, your folks own the Rockingham Ballroom? Well, come right here, sir. Well, it was a full night. And uh, I was perfectly happy to sit in the back row and just to observe. 
but they sat us, my date and I, right on the edge of the dance floor. After seating her down, I decided to go get a drink, but I didn't walk directly to the bar. I figured I'd take the serpentuitous route. I decided to walk between the tables, you know, kind of check out the place. Maybe count heads, see how the layout is. Who knows, maybe you bump into a couple of old customers of mine. So as I was walking through the chair, I mean through the tables, I noticed that uh, in the middle it opened up to an area that didn't have any tables and chairs. It was 25 feet square. It was cordoned off by a velvet ropes and stanchions. And in the middle of it were all women, single women. They were preening and primping and getting ready for the dance. So I looked over to the left, and there was an opening in the stanchions, and that was the corridor to go straight to the bar. So I walked down over there, and there were two long benches running parallel to each other. And on those benches were other women seated, and they were putting on their dancing shoes. And they were seating, they were sitting with their knees facing each other, which made a narrow walkway even narrower. So I just looked at the situation and said, okay, so I kind of sucked in my stomach a little bit and kind of wiggled through them going, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me again, excuse me. And as I was walking through, these ladies were putting on their shoes and they would go, ah, like this. So I looked at it and, okay. And then another one would look down and, oh, what? Oh, wow, wow. Looking at this. And then I started hearing the comments. Hey, check this out. Check this out. You got to see this. So I'm walking along and I'm going like this. See, well, okay, ladies. And then I've seen one lady. She's walking down and she's trying to get a look. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is great, you know, and maybe I shouldn't have brought a date tonight. <laughs> Maybe I should have gone down there and just, you know, enjoyed sitting in this sea of women. So as I got towards the end of the line, the ladies started to see who was coming, and they started moving their legs away, giving me room to get by. So after I passed through them, headed over to the bar and ordered my drinks. And I'm thinking to myself, man, what the heck gives here, you know? These girls are really excited. So I'm thinking, what could it be? Could it be uh, the new clothes that I bought? Could it be my dashing good looks? Could it be uh, my cologne? I don't know. So uh, when the drinks came, I paid for them, turned around. Now, conventional wisdom tells you, if you have two full drinks, okay, the easiest way and the less complicated way of not getting in any trouble would be to walk back to your seat without walking through the people again, go by the empty dance floor. But uh, the male ego being what it is, I said to myself, you know, these ladies really enjoyed watching me come through. Maybe who am I to disappoint them? Maybe I'll go through again and see if I get the same response. So as I walked over to where the entryway was, and I just about ready to walk through that gauntlet of women again, I held the drinks up way up high, and then I'm thinking, oh, my God, what happens if they're annoyed? What happens if they really don't want to see me? But I was wrong. They were glad to see me. So I had the drinks up high, and I'm wiggling through, going, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. And then I started hearing the comments again. Hey, look, here he comes again. 
So I'm walking through, and the same process. One lady would look down, then look up, and she would look smiling in her face, and she kind of nudges the other one. And then I see one person to the right of my eye, she's going. <laughs> so I said, hi. And then just before I got to the end of that line, I noticed there was a lady in front of me, middle-aged, really pretty woman. She had sandy hair, sandy-colored hair, long hair, but it was in a swirl. Hair was really nice. Had a maroon dress. And uh, she didn't see me coming until I was right upon her. And when I did, she looked down, looked up, and went like this. She blew me a kiss and winked. So I winked back. Hey. So I'm walking back, really full of myself by then. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, Glenn, why don't you go through a third time? This will be great. But I didn't. So I walked back to the, to the table. I set the two drinks down. And then I saw what these ladies were all enamored with. My fly was open. It was not only open just a little bit. It was open all the way. Even my shirt tails were hanging out. And I'm not... <laughs> And I'm thinking, you know how it is. They were the new gray slacks. You know the dress slacks, guys? The ones with the 11-inch zippers on them, you know? And I'm thinking back, I just walked through these ladies, and I'm twisting and turning, and they and they're all get their head about waist high to me. And I'm thinking, there was nothing there left to the imagination. So I looked over to where I had just walked, they were all laughing at this stage because they knew what happened. Even the couples, there was two couples in the tables next to us, even they saw it, and they were laughing. So with everybody laughing, and I'm sitting, I'm just about ready to sit down and zipping up my zipper, and I'm thinking to myself, I've got to be the only guy there with gray slacks, a white sweater, and a red face. <laughs> now that happened over 40 years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I still remembered every one of those ladies' faces, and I still remember every one of the expression that they had on those faces. And then I wondered, I wonder how many of they, those ladies today remember my face. <laughs> or I wonder how many of those people remember a young man so many years ago on a Saturday night at the Wonderland Ballroom who walked in front of them, not once, but twice, and shared with them his most embarrassing moment. I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, I wonder. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> Next up, we have Mark Michael Adams, who was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1970, back when the hospital was up on the hill instead of City Hall. For over two decades, as he has watched Portsmouth change around him, Mark has become a local personality involved in the beat night, uh, I mean, beat poet and storytelling scene. He appears on the first Portsmouth Poet Laureate CD, Esther Buffler and Friends, High on Poetry, and on beat nights at the Electric Cave with Larry Simon and Groove Bacteria. 
remember those guys. Now, uh, <laughs> Mark is a big presence. That's one of the things I really like about him. His story tonight is about questioning the faith in which he was brought up. It is titled, The First Time I Ever Stood Up for What I Believed. Mark. Thank you, Pat. When I was a small child, my family attended services at the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses in Kittery, Maine. At a certain point, my mother decided that she should leave my father. So she and my grandmother went to the Kingdom Hall minister to seek his advice. When my mother shared with him that she wanted to divorce my father, he said that this was the work of the devil, that Satan was in her. My grandmother flipped out. My mother expressed that she felt the need to leave my father for safety concerns for myself and my sister. The minister insisted that this was the work of the devil, and if she was to leave my father, we would be disfellowshipped. In the Jehovah's Witness religion, to be disfellowshipped, as in Catholicism, to be excommunicated, you are kicked out, and if seen in public, ignored. You no longer exist in their world. We never went back to the Kingdom Hall. My mother left my father. She packed up me and my sister, and we moved in with my grandparents. So at that age, I learned the two most important men in my life, the ones that are there to protect and to guide, were not protectors. They were not someone to guide you. They were, in fact, a sick mixture of ignorance, delusion, or just plain evil. My mother remarried when I was seven, divorced him when I was 18. But about at the age of 10, myself and my sister, with my grandparents, began attending services at the First Baptist Church in Kittery. This became my quality time with my grandparents. My grandfather was the one solid man in my life. So I really took it to heart. I paid attention. And after about a year, I pulled the Kingdom Hall minister, youth minister aside, and I said, I want to be born again. And he sat down with me, and we prayed. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior, and I became born again. Tears of joy washed down my face. I felt, I figured this out. I know what I'm doing now. At that point, I told my grandparents that as I am much older than the other children in Sunday school, and now that I am born again, I should be able to stay upstairs and hear the full sermon rather than going downstairs for Sunday school. They agreed, but of course I had to be quiet. So I began attending the full services. My first time, I'm sitting in the pew and listening to the service, and the pastor said something I didn't quite understand, and I went to raise my hand. My grandmother batted my hand down, and I look at her, I'm like, I, I, I don't understand. We're here because I'm learning about the fate of my eternal soul. This is really important stuff, and if I don't understand, why can't I ask questions? But she said, you just don't ask questions, just listen. So I sat there, and I listened. 
and I really learned the stories. So here I am. I'm 11 years old, probably at this point in time. And we learned about Noah's Ark. Have you ever noticed that in toddlers' clothing or room decor, you see images of a big boat with animals and a rainbow and a dove with an olive branch? This is not children's story time material. This is the story of the annihilation of all life on earth. This is the stuff of nightmares. And I sat there in the pew wondering, how did the koala bears get from Australia? But I put it away. And then I learned the story of the Passover. Moses orders his followers to sacrifice a lamb and paint the doorway of their homes with its blood. And that night, the Holy Spirit of the Lord passes over the city and kills the firstborn son of every family that does not have the blood on the doorway. I am a firstborn son. I am firstborn in my entire generation. If I lived in ancient Egypt and my father was not a follower of Moses, I die. I learned the story of Abraham and Isaac, where the one creator, the one true God, reveals himself to Abraham and tells him to prove his faith by sacrificing his own son. And Abraham takes him up on the mountain, ties him up, raises the dagger, and right before he swings... An angel of the Lord shows up and tells him not to do it. You've proved your faith. Sacrifice a lamb instead. And I sit there and I look at my grandfather. And I wonder, if God tells you to kill me, will you do it? Will God send the angel in time to stop you? He's let young boys die in the past. Would he do it this time? And then, one day, we watched a movie in church called A Thief in the Night, and I learned about the rapture, the end of the world, massive plane crashes and car crashes because people just disappeared, and there's food shortages, and people are getting the mark of the beast tattooed on their right hand or on their forehead. And I'm sitting there going, like, ah, this is our fate? And it's like, no. No, this can't be our fate. I don't believe this. And that night, I prayed for what was essentially the last time I have ever prayed, admittedly other than the day I found out I was going to be a father. But I prayed, and I said, God, if you exist, I do not believe what these people are telling me you are. You can't be this way. If I'm wrong, forgive me for not believing them. That Sunday, my mother woke me up for church. I said, Mom, I, I don't want to go. She said, why not? I said, I just don't want to go. She said, why not? And I looked at her, and I said to myself, I have to say this. I said, I do not believe what they are teaching there anymore. She said, go back to bed. I said, do you want me to speak to Nana and Papa about this? She says, no, 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 I will. 
And that actually upset me. I wanted to speak to them. You could not build a pedestal big enough for my grandfather. He was a World War II vet. He served in the European theater. He fought Nazis. And I sit there as a child thinking, I see through this. And you don't. How? How can you not see through this? So here's the man that I feel like I'm supposed to be able to turn to for guidance. And I realize I don't have him anymore either. So I stopped going to church. I lost my quality time with my grandparents. No more Saturday breakfasts at the church. Unfortunately, my grandfather passed away about two years later. So, in looking back on it all, today I define myself as an agnostic atheist. It's not that I don't believe in anything. I just don't believe what most humans tell me is absolute truth. And I've told this story many times, but it's changed just a little bit in that I've realized that when we start questioning someone's faith, we don't question what they believe in, really. We start to question their relationship with those that taught them their faith, their relationship with their parents and their grandparents and their community leaders. So nowadays, this story has become more of a message to those like myself who are skeptics and free thinkers, that we need to open our hearts to the people of faith that we interact with, that when we question other people's faith, we must realize that we are questioning the relationship with the people that they love. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Oh. Next up, David Frayner. He's a retired Unitarian Universalist minister. He also was a storyteller and a poet. David recently completed a term as co-chair of the Portsmouth Poet Laureate program, and he is co-host of Portsmouth Poetry Hoot. He believes that storytelling is important because no matter how different our backgrounds or circumstances, when we tell our own true tales, we begin to build bridges, connections with one another. A well-told story is right on the, that is right on the point can be the basis of healing oneself, healing others in similar circumstances, and can even help heal entire communities. As Mark pointed out, it's a big extension here. The title of his story tonight, David's story, is How I Crashed Christmas, or Why I Did Not See the Light and How. All right, David. This story was originally part of last December's True Tales Live program, whose theme was On Seeing the Light, though this story is the opposite of that, about not seeing the light on purpose. When I was eight years old, I crashed Christmas, literally. It was not the end of the world, but it sure felt like it to me. I was deeply, deeply distraught. And the worst of it, the very worst of it, is that it happened 
with all the best of intentions. I grew up in the 50s in a town of Great Neck on the north shore of Long Island. Great Neck, for those of you who are great Gatsby readers, was the real town that the fictional town of West Egg was modeled on. While there were and probably still are Gatsby-style mansions in Great Neck, we lived in a much more modest part of town in a small two-story bungalow. All the bedrooms were on the second floor. My father was of German extraction. And that's relevant to this story because what you've heard about Germans is all largely true. <laughs> we are logical, rational, by the numbers, paint inside the lines kind of people. Indeed, in my rebellious teenage years, I used to joke with my friends that before he went to the bathroom, my father had to make a list. Let's see, close the door, check, <laughs> lift up the seat, check, unzip pants, check. But I was the oldest of two boys. And as an oldest, as many, some of you may be oldest, I was always raised and trained to be a good boy and do the right thing. Sometimes it's not always clear what the right thing is to do. At Christmas time, in our house, my brother and I always hung up our stockings with care, with exacting care, actually. My father would measure one-third of the way from the left end of the mantle, and then one-third of the way from the right end of the mantle, and then screw in the screw hooks for my brother and I to put the stockings on. He explained that there was a reason for this. That way, when Santa came down the chimney, he could go right out into the living room without getting tangled up in all the stockings. And in my house, we had a special arrangement with Santa Claus. On Christmas Eve, my brother and I would hang up our stockings and go upstairs and go to bed. And then later on that night, when Santa came, he would fill all the stockings, fill our two stockings with toys and small gifts. And then he would bring the stockings upstairs and put them at the foot of each of our beds. That way, when we woke up early in the morning, we would have the toys and gifts to play with so that we wouldn't wake up my parents who were sleeping in that day, Christmas morning. They were sleeping in because they spent most of the night putting tab A and slot B, slot B, putting the presents together, wrapping the presents, setting up the tree with the lights and the Christmas ornaments and glass ornaments. Because the idea was that on Christmas morning, when they woke up, we'd all get dressed and go downstairs. And we'd come into this great surprise that had been left by Santa Claus with the gorgeous tree and the lights and the ornaments and all the colorful, colorfully wrapped presents right under the tree. It was a really amazing sight. And, and the whole point of it was the surprise. That was the idea. And that Christmas, what I wanted more than anything else, what I hoped for with all of my heart, was that I would get a pair of seven-foot-tall stilts. Now, I had no idea how Santa would get those stilts down the chimney and into our living room, but that wasn't my problem. That was Santa's problem. And of course, it wasn't really a problem, right? No worries, he's Santa Claus. So I went to sleep that night, 
dreaming of stilts. The next morning, Christmas morning, I woke up pretty early, as usual, looked down at the foot of my bed, no stocking. Got out of bed, went to my brother's room, peeked in, looked at the foot of his bed, no stocking. What was going on here? Had Santa Claus forgotten our agreement? And more to the point, what to do? I mean, I could not wake up my parents early. That was verboten. And I couldn't go downstairs to grab the stockings, which I was pretty sure were right there where we had left them, because that would ruin the whole surprise. And that was part of the point of our Christmas morning tradition, the wonderful surprise of going into the living room and seeing whole Christmas set up before us. So I went back into my bedroom and sat up in my bed and used my eight-year-old problem-solving <laughs> logical brain to figure out what to do. So I thought and thought and thought, and I came up with the perfect solution. I'll go downstairs with my eyes closed and feel my way forward over to where the stockings are bound to be. I'll get them off the hooks, turn around, work my way back across the living room floor, uh, go upstairs, and then give one stocking to my brother, put it at the foot of his bed, take mine to my room. We'll play with our small gifts and toys until my parents wake up. And I won't have ruined the surprise because I wouldn't have seen anything at all. Perfect solution. So I set right out, went over to the top of the stairs, closed my eyes, and began to make my way downstairs. Stairs, not so difficult. I had a handrail. Managed to turn left into the living room. Managed not to knock over any lamps or vases or tables so far. And I was doing pretty good. There was just one problem. Unbeknownst to me, right in the middle of the fireplace, leaning against the mantel, equidistant between the two stockings, was a seven-foot-tall pair of stilts. And feeling my way forward, I ran right into them. The stilts got knocked over to the left. They knocked into the tree, which was to the left of the mantle. The tree tipped over. Uh, lights came off of the boughs. The glass ornaments crashed to the floor. There was great commotion. My parents woke up and came right downstairs. There was screaming and shouting. My eyes were now wide open. <laughs> I had truly screwed up. This was painting so far outside of the lines. <laughs> and I began to bawl my head off. And I tried to explain in the middle of these air gulping, deep sobbing tears, Santa forgot to bring the stockings up and I came down with my eyes closed not to ruin the surprise and I bumped into the stilts and the stilts into the tree and the lights came off and grass and I'm, I am so sorry. And I continued to cry for quite some time. I don't actually remember my parents' reaction. I was sufficiently traumatized. But they must have come through pretty positively because nothing bad happened to me. In fact, I imagine that sometime later, when they were out of earshot and realized what I'd tried to do and why, that they probably had a pretty good chuckle at my expense. But what I do remember 
and I remember vividly clearly those feelings of fear and failure and shame. Pretty soon, my parents started to salvage Christmas. The tree was actually near the corner of the living room, so it hadn't tipped all the way over. It had more or less listed to port, and my father was able to ride it fairly quickly. My mother, with dustpan and brush, cleaned up the broken glass ornaments and got rid of them. And together, my mother and father reassembled the presents under the Christmas tree. And pretty soon, they had fixed Christmas. My mother had put some of the balls into the spaces where the other balls had broken off. My father had reassembled the lights on the boughs of the tree. They did a really nice job of fixing Christmas. We sat down to breakfast, and then we opened our gifts. But even though I didn't burn the house down, which was a possibility, that anxious, deep-sobbing, air-gulping feeling, that feeling of failure and shame at having personally and directly caused a catastrophe, that feeling stayed with me a long, long time. In fact, you can tell I never forgot it. The coda to this story is that my parents did not punish me by taking the stilts away. They said that I could keep them as long as I learned to use them responsibly, which I did. And that summer, I was the best stilt walker on our block. Okay, I was the only stilt walker on our block. But I got really good at using them. I would regularly travel up and down our little street on them. They were really great stilts. And I was pretty great on them. I love those stilts. But I will never forget how I came to have them. That season when I was eight. And I crashed Christmas all while trying to be a good boy and do the right thing by not seeing the light. <laughs> Thanks, David. We're now opening it up to a little intermission before our final three storytellers come up. And um, so I guess have some snacks, a little wine. You know, take a break, come back, and we've got Elizabeth, me, and Sharon Jones. <laughs> Are we ready yet, or did I come? You did it perfectly. Oh, good. All righty. Welcome back, everybody, to the second set. We're um, looking at community influence on changing expectations and beliefs. First up is, probably first down is, is this okay, John? Let me, okay, first down, whoops, is the microphone there, and Elizabeth, who will be coming out, will take it up again. Elizabeth Wolf lives in Rye, New Hampshire. She is a local activist 
who plays a mean trombone with the leftist marching band for good social causes. If the LMB could identify a band leader, which they never will on account of it being against our all-inclusive philosophy of equality, not hierarchy for all, it would be Elizabeth. Like it or not, at gigs, Liz takes charge. Come find the band playing in Market Square sometime, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Her story tonight dates back to a high school experience that was possibly the beginning of Elizabeth's activism. Its title is Pass Fail. Good afternoon. So every class has its unpopular kids. They're shy, quiet, targets of ridicule from their peers for no particular reason. And the classmates who don't just openly bully them, mostly they just ignore them. Arthur was an unpopular kid. I, on the other hand, I was known to my peers as a good student. I got good grades. I was an active class participant. I had strong opinions on academic questions. In particular, I was highly skilled at taking tests. The right answer under pressure, to, under pressure, that was my specialty. I only ever had one class with Arthur. It was 10th grade government and economics. There were about 15 kids in the class and also four or five different teachers over the course of a semester. None of them stayed very long. <laughs> so one of those teachers was Mr. Huggins. He was a long-term sub. He used his stint as our instructor to give out random and totally disconnected assignments. And one day, on a whim, he decided that this class should be having debates on controversial topics. So he chose the subject of nuclear power. He selected two students to each prepare the pro or the con side to present in class the next day. Selected for the con side was Anna. Anna was a universally popular girl. She was kind, she was smart, she was a good student while not being too good of a student. Arthur was assigned the pro side, given the job of defending nuclear power. So the following day, extremely popular Anna and abysmally unpopular Arthur were set to debate. Each of them came in and gave a short presentation. They were confident and informative. Clearly both had spent several hours researching the topic. Being known as a good student, we all expected Anna to do well. Arthur was definitely not known as a good student, but then what did any of the rest of us actually even know about him? But of course, it didn't matter how well Arthur did. He was an unpopular kid, and he had to defend the unpopular side. His fellow classmates proceeded to tear him apart. Never mind that Arthur had actually been the one to research the subject, and the other kid's knowledge of nuclear power could have only come out of comic books. 
for some reason, it was specifically the subject of waste material that drew the most ire. Armed with what he'd managed to read the night before, Arthur tried to describe and defend various methods of storing radioactive waste. His peers would answer with just things like, oh yeah, like that would work. Great defense, guys. <laughs> and whatever you happen to think of nuclear power, there are things that are actually true and false. But why worry about that when you can just cling to misconceptions? To her credit, Anna at least tried to deflect some of the attacks and just point out that Arthur was just doing the assignment. The torment continued, no matter what. And then it got worse. Apparently, for our teacher, the scent of blood in the water was just too much to take. Rather than stepping in, to stop the browbeating of one of his own students, Mr. Huggins joined in. He openly mocked a student whose only offense was completing the teacher's own ridiculous assignment. Agreeing with all those other nuclear physicists in our room, <laughs> he proceeded to just dismiss anything that Arthur tried to state as fact. It was as if he believed like his students, that anything involving fission is apparently just magic. But no, that wasn't actually it, was it? It had nothing to do with nuclear power. It was because it was Arthur. The hurt that Arthur felt was displayed all over his face. Maybe by sophomore year, he was accustomed to the derision of his peers. But to be openly taunted by a teacher must feel so much worse. Arthur withstood the taunting for the rest of class. And I sat at my desk, enraged. What is wrong with all of you? I did not shout. I did not leap to Arthur's defense, or storm from the room, or make a joke to try and break it all up. This test was so simple. Do something. Instead, I stood in silence, was furious that the people around me could be so unfair and so cruel. I have no idea what the aftermath of the incident was like for Arthur. I never asked him. Maybe he was able to brush it off as just one more injustice that he had to face to get through school. It's a sad thought in itself. Selfishly, I prefer it to thinking that he was left scarred by it. For me, I was left to consider nothing less than what kind of a person I was. Was I really willing to sit by and watch someone be tormented? Especially when responding to it was so simple. Did I lack the courage to stand up to my peers? Was I actually intimidated by the authority of a substitute teacher? I certainly didn't want to think so. The facts did seem to speak for themselves. Sure, it made me really angry, but moral outrage on its own, is meaningless. 
There's no partial credit because you get real mad. And perhaps in the scheme of things, this is a minor incident, but it changed how I saw myself. And it changed how I saw my responsibility in the world. Doing the right thing is not an academic question. Opposing unjust authority is not theoretical. And defending the innocent, definitely not trivial. Sitting by in silence was failure. So after initially mulling over what a horrible person I must be, I resolved to do better. Simply put, the incident between Arthur and Mr. Huggins is what turned me into an activist. I surely wouldn't claim perfection from that point on, but I do know that I've improved. It's amazing still to me how much courage it can take to even do the smallest things. And also amazing how much those small things can change you. For the longest time, I wish I'd apologized to Arthur. And I still think at the time it would have been a good thing to do. But now, given the opportunity, I think all I would say to him about it is just thank you. And that's what I say to all of you. Thank you. And I'm still here for the next introduction. <laughs> Coming up next, we have our own MC, Pat Spaulding. She is a writer and storyteller, lives in Rye, New Hampshire. For 30 years, she has earned her living as a touring puppeteer with her business, the Haypenny Theater, and alongside that, crafted personal tales of love, loss, and laughter into storytelling programs for grown-ups. Act One produced three of Pat's one-woman shows. We stayed together for the puppets, Perch for Flight and Looking for Landing, and Dancing with Dad. Pat is the sort of person who studied mime in her youth and still considers a valid career move. She currently enjoys just about everything she does, including dress-up occasions and the celebrity of being a majorette with the leftist marching band. I can attest to all of those things. <laughs> and her story is titled, Mother of the Band. Thanks. Well done, Elizabeth. <laughs> Great story. Uh, this particular story does also involve the leftist marching band and activism to some extent, but I think my motivations are... Uh, not as pure as Elizabeth. On the topic of changing expectations and beliefs, before I start the story, I have to tell you, I always expected to stay young. <laughs> I did not believe that getting old would happen to me. Just, and look at me now. Um, every birthday that ended with a zero. After 20, you know, I did not want to celebrate even 30. And 40, I hadn't gotten married yet, and I had no kids, and I was way off schedule. I was like, no, no, don't talk about it. 50, no. I wanted to leave the country. By that time, I was married, and my husband at the time <laughs> took me away, which was good. Celebrated 50 in Belize. You know, nobody at home, I didn't want anybody to know. 
by the time I was about to be 60, I was divorced and it was, I was going to be 60 and single. I wanted to get totally as far away from my life as I could. So I went to New Zealand for two and a half months. I recommend that. <laughs> I mean, if you got to suffer being 60, you might as well do it there. I figured, you know, being away that long, that far away, things will change. I came back to my life. So nothing much happened until January of 2009. Obama was celebrating his first inauguration in Washington, D.C. And those of us who aren't, weren't not invited were celebrating at the press room upstairs where we all go to celebrate things. Big party, dancing, music, beer, and it was crowded. It was just having lots of fun. Yes, everybody I knew in Ports was, was there. And up those tiny little skinny stairs into an already overcrowded room marched not one, but two activist street bands. This was a surprise to me. I didn't know they were coming. The Second Line Social Aid and Pleasure Society from Somerville, Massachusetts, and our own leftist marching band. Suddenly, an already crowded room had 30 additional musicians and their instruments, drums, horns, glockenspiel, accordion, sousaphone, just fit in. It was packed and big, big cacophony of music and sound. The room was rocking. The happiness factor went boom. I mean, the floor was literally moving up and down. I was afraid to stay, but I wasn't going to leave because I was falling in love with these bands. I had to be part of the leftist marching band. Yes, I did, but I didn't play an instrument except the piano. That wasn't going to help. Somebody said, they're looking for twirlers. <laughs> yes. I was a cheerleader in high school. I had some of those skills. I didn't know how to twirl, but Marguerite Matthews did. <laughs> and so... I signed up for six weeks of lessons with Marguerite and became a twirler for the leftist marching band. And it was great. My life improved exponentially. Got to work with uh, people like Liz. <laughs> you know, trombones, drums, and happiness. We're playing for social causes. We're not just making music. We're making important m music at events. We're bringing attention to things that need to be thought about and, and talked about and yay, <laughs> all good. Years went by. I was about to turn <clears throat> 65. 65? That wasn't going to, how do I actually think about that? That's the definition of being old. You qualify for Medicare. I so did not want to have anything to do with this birthday. Nobody talk about it. No black balloons, nothing. I wanted to leave the country, but I was tired. And it takes a lot of energy to, you know, arrange a trip for yourself to some other country. When fate intervened, an invitation arrived from Canada a foreign country, a band up there called Chaotic Insurrection Ensemble, <laughs> a.k.a. Ensemble Insurrection Chaotique, from Montreal, um, invited the leftist marching band and a lot of other activist street bands from New York and New England and Canada 
to all come together in Montreal for une soirée de musique, or musique de la résistance, anyway, <laughs> on <laughs> Cartos Avril, April 14th, my exact 65th birthday. <laughs> this was great. All I had to do was sign up. The band was on board. They were going to go, you know, they didn't care it was my birthday. They were going. So at about five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> three cars packed full of band members head up north into Montreal, disperse from the cars. Some people go to workshops. Some people go to student protests that's happening. Other people go to their motels to kind of straighten things out. And then in the afternoon, around early afternoon, we all assemble. This is like 200 activist street band members um, to parade down the streets of Montreal for no apparent reason. <laughs> except that it was my birthday. <laughs> so there were horns and drums, and they're all in a big line, and um, I'm looking for the other twirlers. Any of them may written? None. I was the only one. <laughs> I asked a little activist, um, you know, peaky-haired and tattooed and pierced girl, um, so uh, where are the majorettes? And he said, oh, majorettes, uh, we don't have them here. It's uh, an American thing. <laughs> Majorette? Isn't that a French word? <laughs> Didn't matter. I was fine being the only majorette in Montreal, leading the band of 200. All right, to the streets. My birthday, you don't know it, but I do. <laughs> so... Uh, that's over, and now the real <laughs> celebrating is about to begin. Bear in mind, we've been up since before five, you know, all this has happened. And so now about 200 people and their good friends are going to assemble in a room barely big enough to hold us all, not unlike the press room, except it was floor level, to eat and drink and listen to each other all night. We had assignments. There are about a dozen bands, and each one was scheduled in 20-minute segments to go up on, climb up on this small stage. And as one climbed up and did 20 minutes and down, the next one comes up. So there will be music going on all night long and dancing and partying. And that's great. Eight to midnight, Leftist Marching Band was scheduled to go on at 11.30. <laughs> now, these things always run late. But, you know, it's my birthday, and I'm going to... So it's 8 o'clock, yeah, yeah, it's 9 o'clock, yeah, yeah, it's 7 o'clock, yeah, yeah. It's 11 o'clock, I'm leaning up against the windowsill, trying really hard not to fall asleep, you know, 11.30. Somebody comes up and shakes my shoulder and says, we're up next. It's like, okay. So I look on stage to see who the act is that we're going to be up after. It's not a band. It's three guys uh, singing together with microphones and, I don't know, they had guitars, kind of scruffy looking, maybe like lumberjacks, I don't know, Canadian thing. And um, I didn't know what they were singing about, <laughs> but the crowd liked them. And I asked some guy next to me, he said, what? what's going on with these guys? What are they saying? He said, oh, these guys, you never know what to expect with them. They'll say anything, they'll do anything. You never know what to expect. No sooner had he said that, when one of the three peeled off his T-shirt, Swung it around the air and 
threw it out into the crowd. The crowd went wild, yeah. <laughs> so the other two, boop, same thing. Oh, boop, no. boop. <laughs> yeah. And um, now we're all standing because this is a small stage and it's only maybe two feet high and everybody's standing up and dancing stuff. We're, the band is in the back, I'm in the back, so I can't really see what's going on. I can just see three little scruffy looking um, <laughs> French guys naked from the waist up and just shaking whatever's down below. <laughs> could have been the full Monty, could have been the partial Monty, I don't know. <laughs> but the crowd was very supportive and they wanted an encore. So I was thinking previously this was not going to be a hard act to follow. Now this was going to be a hard act to follow. The MC said, after they were finally done, and now the leftist marching band from New York. <laughs> well, I only had my, my baton, so I ran up to correct him, and he instead handed me the microphone. It's like, ah, bonjour. Uh, Je m'appelle uh, Pat, la majorette pour la leftist marching band de New Hampshire, uh, CTC. Uh, bon, nous sommes ici. And the band comes on. <laughs> and so the band's playing music and the people are dancing and everything's fine, except that they couldn't march up on the stage because the Monties were still clearing their mics and mic stands and wires. I don't know how they get them up there. I was sleeping, apparently. But they couldn't get them off neatly and, and efficiently. So the bands aren't going to stop playing. They just line up right in front of the stage, and they keep playing. Oh, this is fine with all the dancers, because they just close in, close. Everybody's dancing. The band, it's all working out. Not so good for the twirler. <laughs> There's no place for me to be, because I'm in front of the band and in front of the audience. And so I can't, you know, the, the dancers are here, the band is there, there's no place to twirl without clocking Liz or, or, or a dancer. So I look behind and I realize, okay, a band can't fit on that stage, but one agile majorette? I could go up there and hop around the cords as they uncoil them and, you know, get rid. So I did. I went up behind the band and I started strutting my stuff and uh, spinning the baton with my band in the orchestra pit. This was good. Visually, this was very good because everybody that was dancing could see me up a little higher over the band and they thought it was groovy in the way that young people think that old people are groovy. <laughs> I mean, I was a woman of a certain age, but I was still doing it. And so I was getting some, you know, yay, <laughs> feeling, yeah, this is, this is all right. I'm doing fine like Glenn. <laughs> and um, so after three songs, the Monty's had cleared. I go down to tell the band, we can go on stage. And Liz, she says, no, this is working. We're staying right here. So what am I to do? There's a big, totally clear stage now. All mine. <laughs> it so happens, as coincidence would have it, that I had purchased rainbow color ribbons for this special occasion, um, to, especially for the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow, because that's the one that, um, well, is very suitable for rainbow colored ribbons. Now, under any other circumstance, I wouldn't have been able to use them, because if the band was on stage, there'd be no room to twirl ribbons, and there certainly was no room to twirl on the floor, but this instant, I could twirl them. 
as coincidence would have it, that is the exact song that the band let in with when <laughs> they decided to stay there and I had the whole stage. So I grabbed my ribbons and it's bam, 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 and somewhere over the, you know, I'm throwing about, and the audience is singing the lyrics. They knew them in English, so I knew what they're, and there's three choruses, so I was just as big as I possibly could, knowing it's almost the stroke of midnight. This is my 65th birthday. I never expected this, but this is God. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the set, I come down, and I'm getting all kinds of kudos from the little French girls. You know, like, oh, you are an inspiration. So glamorous. <laughs> we want to be like you when we grow up. <laughs> How you say so animated. And I think, yeah. Okay. And until um, one little French girl says, are you? The mother of the band? <laughs> My feeling of elation was just deflated. Really? Do I look that old? You think I could have given birth to these people? Liz, maybe, but that's the only one. I mean... <clears throat> and then... It took a beat until I realized, wait a minute, this is not an age-related question. This is a language thing. She's asking me if I am the leader of the band. And with that realization, <laughs> I embraced my full-fledged, authentic, 65-year-old self and said, Mais oui. <laughs> Je suis la mère du bain. Merci beaucoup. C'est tout. <laughs> All true. That is a true tale. Elizabeth can attest to the truth, right, Liz? I know. Yeah. <laughs> and our final storyteller tonight, I mean this afternoon, is Sharon Jones. She is currently writing a book about her life growing up here in Portsmouth, where she was raised in a family of 13 children. Sharon moved to Los Angeles for a while to study voice and become an accomplished performer there. She has performed with legendary jazz artists all across the country and currently performs throughout New England. You can catch her act in Portsmouth at Demeter's Steakhouse, the Dolphin Striker, the Press Room at Rudy's, or in Boston at the Beehive and the Beat Hotel. Sharon gets around. She is a singer, a vocal coach, and now a storyteller. She will tell us a story based on her high school years here in Portsmouth titled Making it big in a small town, my dream was bigger than this. <laughs> Sharon. Nice and dark in here, huh? 
Thank you, Pat. Nice round of applause for Pat Spalding. <clears throat> I have to expound a little bit on uh, the talking about um, age. I remember just a couple of hours ago getting dressed to come over here. My younger sister, who also is my roommate, don't wear that. Take that off. You look old. So I did. I took, took, took the outfit off and put on something different. This, this story that, uh, it's, it's telling stories, um, it's really cathartic uh, for me because you get the chance to uh, express some of the tumultuous times that you experienced when growing up. For me, uh, it was a little different. My family came here from Seneca Falls, New York. And I was told that during a breakfast conversation, my mother and father had discussed that we should take the children to a more diverse place. <laughs> really. I, I don't know if they saw Portsmouth, Virginia on the map or not. <laughs> but they, my father arrived here um, before he brought the family. And at the time, there were 11 children. My younger sister and I were born here in Portsmouth. You can probably tell by the way I say here. <laughs> and to hear a black person say here, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, back in the day when I was growing up, was quite amusing to a lot of people. My story goes back to high school. I've always wanted to be uh, an entertainer. And my mother and father were the greatest parents in the world because whatever their children aspired to, they supported. They were loving parents. I have to talk a little bit about them because that's where I come from, and that's where my views and my aspirations come from. Uh, we woke up with hugs in the morning and kisses at night and sat at a large dinner table. We're not allowed to talk about things that were not fun or interesting. They had to be uplifting if you were at the dinner table. And I was always late running into the dinner table with books under my arm and everyone sitting there waiting to eat because you could not start unless the whole family was, was at the table. Well, I had discussed that I wanted to be um, an entertainer. I wanted to be a star. And my family thought that was wonderful. So when I went to high school, I'm going to move along now to, to high school. We had the most marvelous band leader, Mr. William Elwell and Mr. Muchmore. They were in charge of the band at the Portsmouth High School at the time. And they spotted me and, and uh, realized, or they thought anyway, that I had a, a gift for, for singing. And at 17 years old, my voice was very powerful for the age and the size that I was. So what they would do is they had a, 
a show at the end of the year at Portsmouth High School. And they would uh, um, put talent together, very good talent. And they would uh, embrace the stage at the Portsmouth High School and uh, put on this wonderful show. It was at the time called the, the, the Clipper Minstrel Show. And for four years, they asked that I close the show. And I went out, you know, I said, sure. It was wonderful to me. That, that meant something to me. You're going to be the closer. So for three years, I went out and closed the show with these songs with big orchestra, 30 pieces or more in the orchestra. Sometimes there was a choir also backing me. And that was my dream, you know be out there in front of an audience with a plot after I sang. And they always did, and it was wonderful. But this last year, I realized that something had been happening that I didn't have my eye on. And as you get older, you start to realize that some things in the picture didn't look right. What they were doing all the previous years when I was singing and bringing the house down, but the choir in back of me was in blackface. But I was so, I was so enthralled with the idea that I was looked upon as something special and that I would be closing the show every year. And when they said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Sharon Jones, the just the idea of it, that you were elated and putting me out in front that way. It just, I said, I've got to be a star now. But the fourth year, the audience was packed, packed house. The orchestra was in the pit, in tuxedos and bow ties. And Mr. Elwell had the the little music conductor uh, stick, if you will, and he was getting ready to bring the band and get the band going. And my mother and my father were out in the audience, and my sister Karen was part of the backdrop. Well, I would sit outside the stage, much like I was doing today, and watching everything, and all of a sudden it dawned on me. I said, they're all black-faced. They've all got their faces blacked up with big red lips, and I'm going out there? I don't think so. Not tonight. So he started the band, and when they said, Miss Sharon Jones, I sat. And Mr. Elwell, finally, something is terribly wrong. She always comes out. She always brings the house down. What is wrong? He ordered that the curtain be closed, and he came backstage, and he said, explain to me what you're feeling. He was always compassionate and sensitive. Great, great guy. I said, I cannot go out there tonight. It, it's just hit me what I've been doing all these years, and how can I represent all of the young people that are going to follow me if I don't shut this down tonight? And I knew that I was in a great spot. So he said, Sharon, he said, go get yourself regrouped 
I'm going to take care of this. He did. I came back, had myself freshened up. All of the choir that was sitting in back of me had been ordered to run to the different washrooms and wash their faces. I didn't know that until they called my name again. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the curtain reopened. Miss Sharon Jones. And when it did, they were all in white face. They had all washed their faces. And I walked out in front of that audience and sang just the way you look tonight. <laughs> I, I, I had chosen the song way, way in advance because, of course, those rehearsals had to start way back in December. But there was something about that song that I, I loved. And I walked out and sang that song before I started singing, the audience was on their feet in applause. And when I finished, they were still on their feet. And my mother and father were in tears. I still continue to sing, but I also do uh, a storytelling, and I, I talk and speak a lot to the younger uh, people in my family. And I, I let them know that there's uh, humility goes a long way, and there's a way to do and say everything, but you must be kind and forceful and deliberate. About uh, three or four or maybe more years in there, I think actually it was 20 years more. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Elwell, I was sitting downtown having a cup of coffee. So how long are you going to be here, sugar? Because I sing under Sharon Jones and now... Uh, brown sugar. And uh, he said, I said, I'm going to be here a while. He said, I got something for you. He came back and put a cassette in my hand, and it was the night of that show. And I tried to uh, get that onto a CD so I could play at least part of it for you, so you could hear 17-year-old with that voice and what happened after I sang the song. But it, it just, uh, I, I'm, it's so delightful in my heart and in my mind to know that I made that kind of a dis difference in, in a place where it caught, uh, where it took effect. That was the Portsmouth Clipper Show now. It was the Portsmouth Clipper Minstrel Show. They renamed it the Portsmouth Clipper Show. And I, it was just wonderful. And I continue to sing and tell my story. And I thank you uh, for being here to hear it today. Thank you. We're going to have everybody come out now in order of appearance. Glenn Bergeron, come on up. And Mark Michael Adams. David Freider, Elizabeth Wolf, very nice to very nice to very nice to be here.